Good morning. I'm Joe Collins. I want to welcome you to uh, church this morning. It's nice to have you here with us. This is really high. And uh, it's, uh, it's just a great day to be together. I mean, the weather's been awesome, and uh, I know we're going to have a great time together worshiping God. Before I get started, I want to uh, encourage you to take this card that was on your chair. We call it a connection card. And uh, take it out, and I want to tell you about it real quickly. Uh, the idea of this card is three, three things for this card. One is for you to get to know about us. On here we have our, our meeting times where we meet on Sundays and then also our website information so you can look us up on the web. The second reason we have this card is we want to get to know about you. So if you're new, you're visiting, put your information down here. Give us your name, your email, try to write clearly, and we'll send you a newsletter. And, and if you have any more questions, we can communicate and, uh, and uh, get to know you a little better that way. And then the third thing is on the, the bottom half of the, of the card, actually the, the bottom half of the blue part, there's three lines there, and those are just so you can write a couple notes down, nothing too fancy, just some brief thoughts that you may uh, want to remember from our, our time here today, amen? All right, now before we get started into, into the actual message, though, I want to play a little game with you. I thought it'd be kind of fun, we're, we're a week away from Easter, Easter's always a big time, and we'll have a great worship service next Sunday for that. And, and, but today I thought it would be fun to have a little, uh, have a good time together and play a little music, I'm sorry, movie trivia game. All right, so here we go. I, uh, I did all this uh, on my own with the PowerPoint, so hopefully it's working. Tell me if the number one appears. Did it appear? And it fell down and boomed and everything? Awesome. All right, so here we go. Here's the first question. It's movie trivia. I'm going to play a quote from a movie. You're going to guess the movie. And if it's too easy, we'll, we'll, we'll have other questions about it uh, uh, in addition to try to make it a little, little more challenging, okay? So listen quietly. Here it is. Don't shout it out just yet. But here's the clip. Ready? Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. What movie is that? Godfather. The Godfather. Leave the gun, take the, the, take the cannoli. Now, who said it? What was the name of the actor or the character that said it? Come on, I met another Sicilian in here. He should know this. Where is he? No, it wasn't Al Pacino. The actor's name was Richard Castellano. And his, his tie. Who? That's a good guess. It was Clemenza. He said it. All right, here we go. Number two. That's him right there. Number two, ready? One of my favorites. That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. All right, who got the guess? Aliens? And who said it? What was the character's name? It was Private Hudson, Bill Paxton. Private Hudson, Bill Paxton. All right, here's number three. Ready? You're all going to get this one. Listen carefully. Maybe I am not meant for these duties. Cooking duty. Dead guy. Maybe it's time for me to get a better duty. Nacho Libre, Nacho Dane, that's right, Dane said it, Nacho Libre from the movie Nacho Libre, Black Jack, uh, Jack Black was the actor. All right, last one, this is quiet, you'll get it, but it's quiet, you got to listen carefully, ready? Okay, here we go, clicker, come on. It's from Elf, that's right, he's an angry elf from Elf, and who said it? Buddy, of course, Will Ferrell. I like that last one because we're going to talk about anger today. So turn with me over to Matthew chapter 5. 
We're going to look at verse 21 to 26, and we're going to pray before we read. Father, thank you for bringing us together, and we ask for your spirit to be with us uh, and uh, encourage us this morning. Help us to see the truth that comes out of your word that's so convicting and important to our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, there you go. There's Elf right there. All right, let's read. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now this passage comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Most famous sermon ever taught. It was taught by Jesus early in his ministry, what we call the Galilean period of his ministry. That was the, the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry when he spent most of his time in Galilee. That was in northern Israel what we call Israel today, the northern half of Israel. And he zigzagged all over the place, going to different towns and villages, and he taught and he healed. And as a result, got a lot of people interested in him, gathered a lot of people, began to follow him, began showing up at his, his speaking engagements. Large crowds would, would, would come when Jesus had a chance to speak. They'd want to hear what he said. they want to see a, a miracle. And from those large crowds, Jesus would call people to become his followers. Another word that we like to use is his disciples. That means student. And, and, and these were different than the people in the crowd because the followers were people that had, that had made a decision to become students of Christ, disciples of Christ, and, and that meant that they were going to be trained and they were going to follow in his message and, 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 and preach his message. Now, this particular sermon was taught somewhere near the Sea of Galilee, again in northern Israel, not too far from the border of Israel and Syria today. And up on a side of a hill, a large crowd had gathered. And, in that, and, and they had gathered because Jesus had called those disciples, those followers, to come to him. Word got out, and many, many uh, other people came along. Probably thousands of people gathered around, and Jesus began to teach. Now, it's important to realize that he was teaching his disciples primarily, but he was doing it in the hearing of the bigger crowd because he wanted people to know everything that he was about. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he often talks about commands that were given to the Jewish people in the Ten Commandments, or more technically, we call it the Law of Moses. The Law of Moses was given to the Israelites some 3,500 years ago, 1,500 years before Jesus came and lived. And it was given to the Israelite people at Mount Sinai. God met Moses on the mountain and gave the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses. It's not just ten. There's several hundred, actually. And that law code was, a, was an amazing gift to humanity. It was a, it's the best law code ever produced. Still is today the best law code the world has ever seen. And it turned Israel into a powerful nation. It was at the very heart of the Israelite community was, was this law code. In fact, the original tablets that were handed to Moses were kept in the Ark of the Covenant, the most sacred relic in Israel. In Israel. And in, inside that Ark was the law, the, the, the Ten Commandments and, and the scroll that contained all the other all the other laws. That's how important it was to the people of Israel. And it really civilized them compared to all other cultures at that time. One of the things that made the law code so amazing 
was that this law of Moses, this law code addressed not only outward actions, but it also addressed attitudes. It also spoke to the heart, the inner person. However, in Jesus's day, by the time he came on the scene, the law code had begun to be misinterpreted. It even got misapplied. You know, I want to make one point. I want you to write this down. This is the first thing I want you to write down here on your connection card. I want you to write down interpretation matters. You know, when you read the Bible, we all have to interpret it. That's just the, the fact of the matter. When we read the Bible, we, we've got to come to an interpretation. What does it mean? And you know, uh, you could put 100 people in a room and you're going to get 100 different interpretations. Well, why is that? Well, because people have different ways in which they interpret the Bible. They have different methods. Now, I'm not going to go into a whole long talk about methods, but I'm going to give you three, three quick pointers that you can remember. If you have room, jot them down. I, I do have a couple other things I want you to write down. So maybe these are just for, for memory. You can, you can just write down interpretation matters. And then remember these three things. Number one, if you want to have good interpretation, you have to assume that the Bible is right. That's the first thing. If you don't assume that, then you can, you can change any text you want in the Bible and you can make it say whatever you want it to say. You can accept one part and reject another part. And that basically blows the whole idea of interpretation out the window. So first and foremost, you've got to accept the fact, or what I believe to be the fact, you've got to come to the Bible with an assumption that the Bible is right. Secondly, when you interpret the Bible, you always have to notice the context. So many times people believe in the Bible, they believe it's the word of God, and they open it up and they read a passage, but they take it out of context, and therefore they misapply it, or they misunderstand it. You always have to read it in its context. And then lastly, you've got to get a little bit of background information. You've got to understand the environment. Now, the first two are relatively simple. Okay, I, I, can, I can approach it and assume it's, it's right. It's the word of God. And the second one, okay, I can get the context if I just read a little bit before and a little bit after the, the exact passage that I'm reading. That'll help me with context. But background's a little harder. How do I get background? Well, a couple things. One, it's not that uh, difficult to, in, in our day and age to even just Google a passage of scripture and, and type, type in background. You know, put in the scripture and put background. And you'll get a lot of general historical stuff. There's also books out there, one of my favorites, Haley's Bible Handbook. It's a great little book when you read the Bible, you can read Haley's Bible Handbook at the same time and it'll give you sort of the cultural context, the background information. Very light, it's not too in depth, but it's just enough to understand what's going on. The other thing that's nice about background is once you get a little bit, it's generally the same for all of the passages. In other words, if you get a little bit of background about the life and times of Jesus Christ, well, then whenever you read any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you'll know the background. You don't have to keep relearning it. So it's, it's relatively simple. And these are just three. There's lots of other things. But these are just three things that you can hold on to to help you be better at your biblical interpretation. Now we're going to get to our theme for today things I wish Jesus didn't say. And we're going to get to our specific text. I think I have it on bold on the screen above me. It's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, first half of the verse. He says, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Wow. Did Jesus just say, don't get angry? I wish he didn't say that. <laughs> it's, it's too easy to get angry. I get angry all the time. 
What does he mean? This is, this is a difficult statement. Don't be angry with anyone. I mean, after all, didn't Jesus himself get angry? What about righteous anger or indignation, as we call it? Or how about this? Isn't anger a feeling? How can feelings be wrong? Those are just three questions that pop into my head. Well, if we're going to understand in this passage, we're going to understand what he meant, and we're going to learn to appreciate what he said, and we're going to go from I wish he didn't say it to I'm so glad he said it. If we're going to get there, we're going to have to go a little deeper. We're going to have to look at the background. We're going to have to look at the context, and we're going to have to trust that what we read is right. It is from God, and it is right. So let's look at our next passage. What we're going to do now is we're going to take just the first two verses of what we already read because this helps us with a little bit of background and a little bit of context. He says, verse 21, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, what's happening here is Jesus is beginning with a passage from the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. It's actually a command in the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. This was something that the, the Jews in the time of Jesus fully believed in. They, they accepted. It's something we still believe in and accept today. It is wrong to murder. And he begins with that. But what we find out in the course of reading this passage and, and, and getting a little bit of background information, we're going to find out that in Jesus' day, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the people who were, who were charged with studying the, 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 the law of Moses and, and, and teaching it to the people, interpreting it to the people, that they had got it wrong, that they had misinterpreted the passage. Before we look a little uh, deeper into that, let's first define what we mean by murder, because this is always a question. Some translations of the Bible say, thou shalt not kill. Others say, thou shalt not murder. And to our ears, those are two very different things. And there are people today who take the word kill, and they say Christians can't do anything. They can't eat animals. They can't be policemen. They can't serve in the military. They just they can't defend themselves. You know, and we should never do anything ever because we can't kill. And they take it as this blanket statement of any taking of life. But that's the question is, is that actually the correct interpretation? Well, the, the Hebrew word here is a word, I can't pronounce it, but it starts with an R, Rashak, or something like that. And literally translated, it means the unjustified killing of another with malice. Now, that's different than killing. When you unjustifiably kill someone with, with malice, that's defined as murder. And that's the word that was used in the law of Moses. So the correct translation here is thou shall not murder. Because the fact of the matter is, as horrible as this sounds, there are times where killing is justifiable. Even in our law courts today, we still uh, defend the, 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 uh, the, the right to defend yourself or your, or your property. If somebody breaks into your home and is going to harm your, your family, you have the right to defend them and protect them even to the point of killing. That would be called a justifiable murder. Another one that you, you could think about is, remember 9-11, long time ago, but when those planes were flying into the, into the buildings and it became apparent that these were being used as bombs, an order was given that if, if another plane got loose, they were to shoot it down. Well, now you would be killing 100 people in an airplane, but you would be doing that to save how many thousands on the ground. And so as difficult as that choice is, it is a justifiable choice when you're doing it to save life. That's just one example. And one, one reason why to interpret this as thou shall not kill is, is incorrect. 
The best way to interpret the law of Moses is thou shalt not murder. The unjustified killing of another person with malice. Now, here's where we get into the, the passage and, and, and really start to, to understand what's going on here. Why Jesus said it and why what he said was so shockingly different than what people in his day believed. The scribes, the teachers of the law, how they interpreted this passage and how Jesus interpreted this passage that comes from the law of Moses was very different. So let's look a little closer. Jesus starts with this phrase, you have heard that it was said. What that tells us, that indicates to us that he's talking about the common uh, translation in his day. How, how people commonly understood the, the, the command of Moses, thou shalt not murder, how they understood it in their day. That's what he means when he says, you've heard it was said. In other words, hey, you hear people say this all the time. This is what people think this means. Okay, so he's clearly talking about the consensus or the common idea at the time. And what is it that they, they said? You shall not murder, which is from the law of Moses. But then they add this sentence, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, interestingly enough, I went back and researched this, and that's not in the law of Moses. That second statement is not there. It says, thou shall not murder. And then if you look in other parts of the Old Testament, you'll see definitions of murder and what to do if somebody does this or if somebody does that. And there's lots of explanation. But this statement is actually not there. The Pharisees, I mean, the scribes and the teachers of law actually added a statement. And it was a clarifying statement. But it was their interpretation of what the law really meant. And you'll notice in this statement that they repeat the word murder. In essence, what the scribes were doing in the time of Jesus is they were focusing on the actual act of murder. Hey, if you actually kill someone unjustifiably with malice, then you have sinned. And that was, that was it. That was enough for them. But, but interestingly enough, this allowed them and the people that they taught this to, to feel all kinds of angry attitudes against other people. Feelings like malice, hatred, contempt, bitterness, etc. All of those were somehow okay because the scribes only focused on the act. They mainly emphasized the act of murder, but they didn't deal with the attitude behind it. The hatred, the malice, the contempt, the bitterness, etc. So in other words, you could be righteous. You could call, consider yourself righteous in the time of Christ and allow yourself to feel all kinds of angry feelings as long as you didn't physically murder someone. Now, Jesus challenges that interpretation. We see that because in verse 22, he says, but I tell you. So Jesus is now explained their position. Here's what you've been taught. Here's what the Old Testament says. Here's what you've been taught. Now let me tell you how I interpret this. Now let me explain this to you as I see it. And he goes on to say, anyone who murders, uh, uh, I'm sorry, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And he uses the word anger. He doesn't use the word murder. What is Jesus doing there? Well, he's helping us understand that, that as he saw it, as he read the law of Moses, as he understood it, the law of Moses condemned not only the act, but also the attitude. It actually was a condemnation of both. Yes, it's wrong to unjustifiably kill someone, but, it, but it's wrong to have malice, hatred, and bitterness in your heart too, whether you kill somebody or not. 
And so both the action and the attitude are wrong in Jesus' eyes. And then he goes on and tells two quick examples to make his point. Check these examples out. They're really interesting. He says, anyone, verse uh, 22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. So those two quick examples, calling someone Raka, which means worthless, referring to someone as a fool, what he's pointing out there is that in his day, you could be charged a crime in court for calling someone raka, for calling someone a worthless person or a fool. You could, be got, you could be taken to court for that kind of statement, that kind of insult, and you could be uh, condemned for that. You could be found guilty. In our day and age, how, does this, how do we apply this? Well, in our day and age, it's kind of like slander, right? You can go to court and be a charge of slander and be considered guilty of slander. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, I know that you guys think that the law of Moses really only focused on the actual act, but the truth is it actually focused on both the action and the attitude. And by the way, it's even true still to this day because you can still get taken to court for a bad attitude against someone. For committing slanderous or, or making a, a, a horrible uh, insults against someone is still a, a, an offensible crime in their time. So Jesus was just basically padding his argument. He's going, look, you guys are missing the point. I'm telling you, it's all here to be seen. Both murderous actions and murderous attitudes, hatred, anger, contempt, bitterness, resentment, all summed up in the word angry, are wrong. They're wrong. They've always been wrong. They were wrong from the day God gave the law to Moses, and they're wrong in Jesus' time. And truth be honest with you, they're wrong today. It's wrong. This is not the kind of spirit that Jesus calls his followers to have. He doesn't want us to be in this, you know, sink to this level. This is not who he wants us to be. He's calling us to a much higher place. Right. A place where we can, we can hold up to the standard, don't be angry. Don't have the murderous, the hateful, the bitter feelings, the resentments towards other people. Right. So I want you to write down on your connection card, second line, don't be angry. Now I know exactly what you're thinking because you're thinking what I was thinking or something like it. It would be a lot easier if we just stayed with the scribe's interpretation. <laughs> I like their interpretation, it's a lot easier, it's much clearer. As long as I don't kill somebody, okay, I'm fine. But the truth is, man, if you're going to bring in my feelings into this and my attitudes, now this is becoming messy. This is becoming complicated. And the next thing that went through my head right away was, well, now I have a bunch of questions. I, I mean, I do. And, and I have three questions. I mentioned them earlier. And you may be asking these same questions yourself. And here they are. Well, if it's wrong to be angry, didn't Jesus get angry? I mean, if you've read your Bible, you, you've seen passages where it seems like Jesus got angry. So how could he say not to be angry, but he got angry? There's something I don't understand there. Or what about righteous indignation or, or indignation, a fancy word for anger? What about anger when it's righteous? I mean, can't that be okay? It's not wrong. I mean, I got to be able to have that, can't I? And then lastly, can feelings be wrong? So let's take every one of these objections one at a time. I'm going to start with the first one. I like this one, and I like the, uh, and, and this objection because I, I, I struggled with this. As a matter of fact, there was a time in my life where I felt like somebody 
was treating me inappropriately. I felt like they had an anger issue and they were taking it down on me and I confronted them and it didn't go well. So we got somebody else to get involved and that person said I was wrong, that I didn't understand anger and that it was perfectly fine for this person to be angry at me. So he said, you need to study out anger. And his argument was, because Jesus got angry, then this fellow can be angry too. So I went, all right, I'm going to study out anger. And I went back and read every single verse in the Bible that had to do with anger. And even closely related to the word anger. And I'm going I'm to tell you something that I found out. Did Jesus get angry? The answer to that is yes. But very rarely. In fact, he spent almost no time on earth being angry. There were just a couple of incidents where, where he displayed some anger. And it was so brief and it was so short-lived that to describe him as an angry person would be incorrect. But did he get angry? Yes, very rarely. But secondly, and here's what I learned in my personal study, and I'm just going to share it with you today. He's God. I'm not. It's always a danger when I try to justify my behavior by saying Jesus did it. Jesus walked on water. I'm not going to walk on water. Jesus raised people from the dead. I'm not going to raise people from the dead. Jesus did a lot of things because he's God. That doesn't automatically mean, therefore, I can do these things. It doesn't mean because he did it, it's allowable for me. Did he get angry? Yes, very rarely, very briefly. But remember, he's God. And as God, he cannot sin, but I can. So what's my point? It's just not a good comparison. Be careful. It's not a good comparison. Second thing that popped into my head, what about righteous indignation or righteous anger? Well, let's, let's define the term first. What does righteous indignation mean? And the best way to define righteous indignation is being angry at what angers God. See, because God defines right and wrong, and God gets angry with things that are wrong. Sin, namely sin, right? God gets angry with sin. So being righteously indignant is very specific definition. I am angry at what God, get ang- at what God gets angry at. Right. Now, if, if you can keep yourself in that narrow definition, then, then you're going to do pretty well. You're allowed to be angry at what God gets angry at. But the, the real question you got to ask yourself is, it's not that easy, right? It's, it's, it's really difficult for us to get angry. I mean, it's really easy for us to get angry at all kinds of things that God doesn't get angry at. Right. And so it's easy for us to get confused and say, I'm righteously indignant because I feel like I'm right. <laughs> or I, my, my, I believe I'm right. But the question is, did, did God really get angry at that? Does he really not like that? Did Jesus get upset when someone uh, did something rude in front of him? Actually, not all that, <laughs> almost never. Did Jesus yell at his kids? Did Jesus yell at other people's kids? Right? I mean, we justify our anger a lot of ways, and we want to call it righteous, but the fact of the matter is, look and see at the times Jesus got angry, and you'll see a very narrow definition of what he gets angry at. Now, here's a concept I want you to remember. 
The more we, you and I, become like Jesus. Remember, he's calling people out of the crowd to to be his follower, which means to become like him. The more you and I become like him, here's an interesting concept. The more angry we get at sin. So here's the big question. Here's the $100,000 question. When was the last time you were indignant about your sin? Wow. I mean, if it's true that there is such a thing at righteous indignation and righteous indignation is being angry at what God, what angers God. When was the last time you were so upset with yourself, so angry with yourself for the sin that you've committed? That's a good barometer to know. Am I righteously indignant? Because it starts with me. When I'm righteously indignant, I'm upset at what I do, not at what other people do. My my, my, the standard is on me. Another thing to remember is that if we become more like Christ, the more angry towards sin we feel, so the more righteous indignation we have towards our sin, but the more love we have for sinners. Right? One follows the other. If I'm like Christ, I'm going to be indignant about sin, mainly my sin, and maybe occasionally other people's sin, but the more love I'm going to have for those other people. Because that is... What Jesus did. That is who he was. Right. So be careful when you try to stand on the, the, the solid ground of righteous indignation. There's a lot of peril there. Mm-hmm. The last one. Can feelings be wrong? Now we live in a culture where feelings are everything. Mm-hmm. Feelings. You can't, feelings can't be wrong. They're feelings. So what's the answer to that question? Can feelings be wrong? I'm going to put it out to you just real quick. What would you say? Can feelings be wrong? Yes or no? So the answer is yes and no. I'm going to repeat that. The answer is, can feelings be wrong? Yes and no. That's the answer. You see, we're human and feelings are very human. God created us. And and because we are created in his image, that implies that he has feelings too. And he does. And so he created us. He created us to be like him. So we have feelings. But as humans, we're also flawed, which means our feelings can be flawed. Not all the time, but they can be flawed. And so feelings can become sin. And I'm going to give you three quick things to think about. Feelings can become sin when, there's probably others, but I want you to hear these three. Feelings can become sin when, number one, they're causeless. You're just angry. Because you're angry. <laughs> you know, it's not exactly because somebody did something to you. It's just causeless. Or it's not justifiable. Okay, the person was rude, but that doesn't justify you being angry. Secondly, feelings can be wrong when they're excessive. Yeah. You know, we talked about this last Sunday or a couple, and a couple Sundays ago about the punishment must fit the crime, right? God, God has a, a balance. You know, if someone does something wrong... They spill the milk. You don't fly into a rage at the dinner table. There's a balance there. They they purposely spill the milk, so it's got to be a cause, right? They purposely spill the milk. And yeah, there may need to be a correction there, and you might feel a slight bit of anger. But it's not justifiable to be excessive. Or, third reason when, when you can identify your feelings as going down the wrong road is when they are ongoing. If you're holding a grudge... If you're refusing to talk to someone 
I'm Sicilian, and, and we always like to say, you're dead to me. If you're in that place, <laughs> that's not the right place to be. That's ongoing. So think about those things. How do I know when my feelings are, are getting off track? I have them. They're human. They, they do happen. They're not necessarily wrong because they happen. The question, does, the question comes in is, when do they become causeless, excessive, or ongoing? Right? Those are just three quick ways to sort of test your own feelings. How do I know if these feelings are good or bad? At the end of the day, what, what, Jesus is not, what Jesus is trying to prevent, what he's calling us as followers, remember, he's talking to followers. Right. What he's calling followers to, to do is to not let angry feelings turn into angry attitudes or actions. Amen. And that is, in a sense, what the law of Moses taught when it said, thou shall not murder. Because in murder, both the action and the intent were in view. And that's what the scribes wanted to forget about. They tried to separate the issues. But they're both in view. And so at the end of the day, Jesus is saying, look, don't, don't let your anger turn into angry attitudes or actions. So can feelings be wrong? Yes and no. Another way to think of it is like temptation. We get tempted, but temptation doesn't necessarily mean you've sinned. Everybody gets tempted. Jesus was tempted. Right. You sin when you act in an inappropriate way as a result of the temptation. Yep. So the temptation leads you to sin. Well, it's similar. You may feel angry. It happens. It happens to all of us. We're human. That's not necessarily wrong in and of itself unless you let it go into attitudes and actions, unless you don't keep it into check. Okay, you may have other objections. I'm sure you do, and there's probably 20 others. For every one I mentioned, there's probably 20 other questions and objections that people come up with. And, and here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'll, I'll hang out afterwards. Come up to me and ask me whatever question you want. I'll do my best to answer it. If I don't, I'll get back to you with an answer. But feel free to talk to me in the fellowship. I'm happy to ask uh, to, to, to help with any question or objection you may have. And I'll hang out afterwards. And, and if you want to talk to me, I'm sure another brother or sister in our fellowship here, the person that invited you, would be happy to talk to you about it. But we're going to move on. Let's look at the, the, the last part of the, of, the, of, the, of the teaching here of Jesus. Verse 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together, on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Now, Jesus has just got done reinterpreting or correctly interpreting the law of Moses to the people of his day because they had lost sight. They had gotten off track and they had misinterpreted and misapplied it. So Jesus brings the correct interpretation around by saying, don't get angry. Right? He's, he's letting them know that, that the, the command against murder in, in, included both ang, um, action and attitude. And now he goes on and he gives two quick examples of what he's talking about. Of, of, of what we ought to do when we identify causeless, ongoing or excessive anger. What do we do? Well, look at the first example. This is the story of a guy who's at temple. He's at church. In those days, they, the Jews worshiped at the temple, and the way they worshiped is they brought sacrifices or offerings. 
And that was a very important part of their life, a very important part of, of everyday Jewish life was to, was to be able to go to the temple. Maybe not every day, but when they traveled there, I think it was three times a year, everybody came and they made their offerings and they made their sacrifices and it was, it was an important time. And as often would happen, when they were there and they were making their offerings and they were getting sort of themselves reconnected to God and re-in-touch with, with the, the, the teachings of God and, 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 and um, kind of all the crustiness is getting chipped off of them and they're getting spiritual again, they may have realized, oh, I think I did something wrong a couple days ago. Oh, I think I wronged my neighbor a while ago. That sometimes happens. It happens when you come to church sometimes. You come to church and you're sitting there and next thing you know, you start going, Oh, maybe I, maybe I should rethink what I just said to my wife yesterday, or maybe I should think about what I did to my neighbor two days ago. We, we have these, these opportunities when we come to worship where the Spirit works on us, right? right? And, and it brings about conviction. And sometimes we, we get realizations and we think, oh, I ought to do this, or man, I ought to stop doing that. It happens. It, that's what happens when you come into the presence of God. And so Jesus gives this example of a person who's doing just that. There he is in the presence of God. He's making his offerings. He's worshiping. And he realizes that in context, it could be anything, but in context, we're talking about anger. He realizes he's been wrongfully angry at someone. What do you do? What do you do when you realize your anger has become sinful? What does he say? He says, you stop your worship and you immediately go and be reconciled. Pause for a second. Imagine that. Wouldn't it be interesting if, if, if we did church like that? If people come to church and, and we, we're there and we're singing and we're doing our thing and suddenly we get a conviction and we get convicted of something we've done wrong that involves another person and suddenly people just get up and walk out. <laughs> and, you know, we did that today. People are like, oh, the guy doesn't like the message. But, but maybe in, in the best scenario, we would go, amen, the guy's gotten convicted. He's going to go take care of something. That's kind of the idea here. He's not, I don't know that he's meaning to be this, that literal, but he's saying deal with it and deal with it now. Right. If you've been convicted, if you've realized I've got something going on against a person in my life, specifically having to do with anger, whether they've committed a wrong or you've committed a wrong, it doesn't really matter. If that relationship is broken, I need to deal with it now. Right. Don't be fooled. I need to deal with it now. The scribes and the teachers of the law in Jesus' day actually taught the opposite. They were fooled. They thought, hey, it doesn't matter. As long as you didn't kill the guy, don't worry about it. Keep bringing your gift. <laughs> but the law of Moses, and as Jesus interpreted it, and what he taught his followers, he said, no, 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 that's not the standard. It's not set only on the action. It's set on the heart. It's right. set on the attitude. Right. And if you have this kind of heart, you have this kind of attitude, then you've got to deal with it. You've got to deal with it right now. That is a high standard. But you know, rather than wishing he didn't say it, I, as I study it more, I begin to appreciate that he said it. I begin to be grateful that this is the standard. Because this is the community I want to live in. This is how I want my relationships to be, that we can resolve our differences and we can resolve them quickly and they don't become ongoing, they don't become excessive and they don't become causeless, our divisions, our conflicts with one another. It's a, it's, it's a waste of everybody's time, right. including God's. Right. Don't waste your time. Don't be fooled. 
Don't waste your time worshiping God at church and have resentment, bitterness, malice, anger towards someone in your life. Right. No amount of worship will make up for that. That's not the religion that Jesus taught. That's not the religion that God gave to the Israelites. Well, if I can make my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, I'm good. That's the kind of thinking that justifies people crashing planes into buildings. That's not the kind of thinking of the law of Moses or of Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. The second example is when you're being taken to court, right? He tells a story of being taken to court and he says, hey, go get that guy on the way to court and resolve quickly with him because you don't want to end up in court, right? So this is an example, I believe, of when someone has anger against you. And it may be, maybe you've done something wrong. Maybe you've done nothing wrong. Maybe their anger is just causeless. Maybe it's just excessive. Maybe it's just ongoing. And they're trying to deal with it. And they're not dealing with it rightly. They're, they're, they're going full board to take you to court because they're just mad and they want to hurt you and punish you and do whatever, inflict damage to you in some way. Jesus says, if you realize that's happening, if, if, if it suddenly comes clear to you that, uh-oh, this person's got an issue with me, he says, go and deal with it. Go get reconciled to them before they get to court. Because that ain't going to go well for anybody, especially you. Settle matters quickly. So here's the point. Here's the point of the whole sermon. We're, gonna, we're wrapping it up right here. Here it is. Summarizing everything we've just heard Jesus teach in the context, with the background, trusting that this is the word of God and that it is, it is right. Here's the point. Whether you're angry with someone or someone is angry with you, repair quickly. And if you can fit that in your little line there on, on your connection card, please do. Or just write the words repair quickly. That's the whole teaching summarized right there, the whole sermon in a sentence. Whether you're angry with someone or someone is angry with you, repair quickly. We're going to get ready to take communion. It's a time to remember the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I started today's message with the, the, the movie quotes, but I'm thinking about a quote that's by far more important and more famous. And that's the quote Jesus made when he was hanging on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Amen. It was said by Jesus, maybe in a whisper, as he hung on the cross, dying. And it is the ultimate example of hating sin, but loving sinners. Right. You see, Jesus went to the cross and he suffered the way he did because of our sin, our Things like, you know, things like our unrighteous anger. And he suffered the punishment, the consequence for that sin. God hates that sin so much it has to be consequenced. And Jesus suffered the consequence, the punishment for it. But at the same time, as he hung there, enduring that, he also reconciled us to God. Amen. And he had done nothing wrong. All the wrongs were on us. And he was the perfect example of the person who, even though he hadn't been wronged in any way, shape, or form, went and reconciled people. He did it for me, and he did it for you. And that's what he did on the cross. And as we take the bread and the cup, let's remember that. I'm going to pray, and we'll take communion together. And then we'll have a song.
and we'll have final, uh, uh, we'll close out with some final announcements and be done for today. Let's go to God in prayer.